Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Communities and individuals always overestimate their own importance and abilities. This illusion is reinforced by the self-serving narratives we create to bolster confidence in ourselves and in our institutions. Nations, religions, ideologies, communities, families, everyone, down to the last individual, is compromised by this dangerous lie. Jonah disobeyed the word of the Lord, yet, when questioned about his identity, he boasted, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Soon after, Jonah, who supposedly feared the Lord, had to be forced to obey the same against his will. Did God listen to Jonah's prayer or simply endure it? Did Jonah repent? Literally, did he choose to turn and go in the correct direction, or was God forced to turn him around? The story of Jonah follows the storyline of the Bible. The word of the Lord is for all nations and acts on everyone's behalf despite ourselves. No one is exceptional. No one is good. In fact, in God's eyes, we all look the same, no matter who we are, where we are from, or how we see ourselves. Is Jonah different than the Ninevites? Perhaps in this way alone, God did not need to force the Ninevites to obey his word, and he only had to ask them once. Richard and I discuss Jonah, chapter 3. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 217 of the Bible as Literature podcast. People who follow the rules get irritated when those who don't also realize some measure of success. And from the perspective of scripture, both the one who followed the rules and the one who did not follow the rules, to the extent that they receive any success, are only correct if they understand it as grace. If you know that your grade is grace, if you know that that is grace, you would never judge the person whom you think in your sinful heart of hearts didn't work as hard as you. You would not judge them. Instead, you would rejoice in their success. Jonah may somehow imagine that his position with respect to God is different than the Gentiles, but we see in the content of the story, in the storyline, that Jonah himself, whatever boxes he thinks he's checked off, 
is no more righteous than those whom he sent to evangelize. I've been doing work recently on what the understanding of Hebrew is in the Bible. And one of the things that's significant about the word Hebrew is that it actually is a very broad term. A lot of times people think Hebrew and Israelite should be equated, but they certainly are not. And the best example of this is Pharaoh and Joseph, when Joseph is not allowed to sit with his brothers when he's understood to be an Egyptian because Egyptians are not allowed to sit with Hebrews. There would be no reason for Egyptians to have a rule against sitting with Israelites, considering Israelites were one family that lived a far way away. Why would they have a rule like that? So obviously the Egyptians did not have a connection between Hebrews and Israelites. Hebrews was a broader group. That's number one. Number two, Jonah just means dove. There's no God's name within that. Oftentimes they would have a name with the name of a deity embedded in it. So for example, you have Ezekiel, El being short for Elohim, or you have Isaiah, Yetziahu, Yahu is the name Yahweh. But Jonah doesn't have this. It just means dove. The third point is that Jonah introduces himself as a Hebrew who worships the God of the heavens and the earth. He does not mention Yahweh, and he does not introduce himself as an Israelite. It would be very possible to understand that Jonah is not necessarily an Israelite, but in fact a Gentile from the area of the Syrian desert where the Hebrews originated, where Abram originated, who's the first one who's called the Hebrew. So there would be a good argument to make that Jonah, in fact, was a Gentile being sent to other Gentiles, Nineveh, interestingly enough, in the Fertile Crescent, not in Canaan. So you have a non-Canaanite, Jonah, being sent to a non-Canaanite city, Nineveh. This could all be happening outside of the sphere of Israelite narrative that we have through the rest of the Bible, which would be very interesting that then this Gentile, let's say he's a Gentile, in chapter 2 offers this psalm that sounds very Yahwistic like you would find in the psalms within the Israelite worship, and this is the one who's talking. And then it makes it even more powerful that he hopes to see the temple again because the temple is something for Israelites, according to a lot of people's understanding. But in fact, the temple is supposed to be for all nations, including the other Hebrew nations. That's the crimson thread, one of the crimson threads that Father Paul always refers to, that the Bible is pushing for the teaching to be for all the nations. Now, with respect to what you're saying about Jonah being a Gentile, in the functional metaphoric use of the term Hebrew, in my mind, it immediately connects to Paul's statement at the end of Galatians, when he says, peace be upon the Israel of God, who are the ones who walk according to this canon. Meaning that the inclusion as a member of the body of Israel is determined not by fleshly circumcision and not by your biological lineage, which touches on what Father Paul has repeatedly explained about the Toledot in Genesis. It has to do with your obedience to the Bible. And in this sense, Jonah definitely is not an Israelite. He can't be because he's disobeying. The problem with scholarship and the problem with contemporary theology is that you begin with this emphasis on identity. 
Ah, Jonah is a Jew. Where does it say that Jonah is a Jew, and what does that mean in this text? And why does his identity matter? Why is your reference his ethnos, when the textual reference is that the word came to him? It didn't say the word came to him because he was Jewish. It said the word came to him. We have to take this seriously in our reading, and I'm very thankful for the study that you're doing right now on the use of the term Hebrew, because I think it dynamites a lot of existing assumptions about what Israel means and what role ethnicity plays in scripture. Scripture is actually dynamiting ethnicity. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and proclaim to it the proclamation, which I'm going to tell you. This to me is the famous number two in scripture which precedes number three, and number three is the time of the judgment. And I'll just point out here that chapter four does not begin with this phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, because if the word of the Lord comes the third time, Jonah is in trouble. And if you think we're reading into it, please be mindful that the author of this text is making a point to say that this is Jonah's second chance. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time time. And this preaching, and the English can't render this very well, the same word in Hebrew is used for calling and for reading. Reading was understood to be an oral task. And so the word is call out, or it could also be translated as read, even though there's not necessarily a written text that he's reading from, but read a reading, call out a calling, kara kariya. So please don't imagine that Jonah is going to Nineveh to give sermons. There are no sermons to give. He is going to Nineveh to proclaim what was put already in his ear or placed in his mouth, if we go with the Ezekielian metaphor, to be repeated. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Here I also want to mention that if you're paying attention to the storyline, at this point you feel like we wasted time with Jonah's prayer. Because we're doing now in chapter 3 what he was supposed to do in chapter 1. Yeah, we could have avoided half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and gone straight to verse 3 of chapter 3. It's important that this book, half of the book, is about Jonah not doing the right thing, ending up at the bottom of the ocean in the complete state of death, as far away from God as possible, before he returns to come to proclaim this word. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So Jonah gets to announce the destruction of the city. That feels really good when you see yourself as one of the good guys who has finally made a turnaround and set your eyes on the Lord's temple, never mind the fact that the Lord's temple was with you all along. I'm hoping that Jonah remembers everything that happened in chapters 1 and 2, and his memory doesn't start with chapter 3, verse 3, where Jonah arose and did according to what the Lord said. Because this is what happens so often with human beings. There's the one thing that we did right, and we want to make not only our own self-righteousness, but our own religion around that one thing that we did right, while ignoring everything else. I mean, whole foreign policies are built on this tendency to ignore all the things that we did wrong because of one thing that we did right. 
look, the dominant metaphor for the preacher, the one who gives this proclamation, has to be the metaphor of Samson bringing the temple down on his head. When Jonah is announcing the destruction of Nineveh, if he doesn't understand it's unto his destruction also, then we have a problem. That's why you can't compare ultimately Jonah to Jesus Christ. It's incorrect. Because Jesus Christ understood that the proclamation of God's instruction meant his destruction with Jerusalem. He wasn't announcing Jerusalem's destruction from afar and then getting some popcorn to sit down and watch. Samson brought the temple down on his head. Does Jonah understand the teaching that is contained in the story of Samson? Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So this is where the C students suddenly show up the last day for the exam and put on a good performance. I wonder how that's going to make Jonah feel. The Ninevites, the first time they hear the word of the Lord, they're ready to jump. I don't know, maybe Jonah's the C student and the Ninevites are the A student because they're the ones who are ready to do whatever the teacher says on day one. Jonah's the one who has to figure out his own way. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And I hasten to point out that it doesn't say in verse 6, when Jonah reached the king of Nineveh, or when Jonah spoke to the king of Nineveh, it says when the word reached the king of Nineveh, once again, the prophet is irrelevant. And there was not a time when Jonah took his robe from him, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So, again, the Ninevites seem to be getting this right one after the next. The greatest to the least of them are fasting. The king himself is submitting. Jonah had to go through death, had to go through literary hell in order to finally do what God said. Whereas the king of Nineveh only received a word, and that was enough. Again, I want to point out something that's implicit in that fact, Richard which is that the prophet in this story, the religious insider in other books in the Bible, the ones who imagine themselves to be the good guys, the older brother in the story of the merciful father. There are plenty of examples like this in scripture. They imagine that they're better than the others, but it's a lie. It's a profound lie. There's a reason why we have so many examples, Father, like you mentioned, is because it takes that much work to untangle the self-righteousness from the human ego. I mean, they're all wrapped up into the same thing. The whole ball of yarn has to be put aside so that the human being can submit to the word of the Lord. You are not baptized. And if you've been baptized, you are not baptized yet in the eyes of God. You are not baptized until you see the prostitute, until you see the person you fear and you hate, until you see the person that everyone loathes when they come into the place where you are, and you don't look at them with pity, you don't look at them with this sense of compassion as though you have something to offer them, which is arrogance. Pity is a manifestation of arrogance. That's why it is the egotistical who are also at the same time sentimental, because it's an expression of self-superiority. 
Scripture has no time for your sentiment or your pity or your tears until you understand that you are not equal to that person who is loathed, but that you are, in God's eyes, less than them. You're not baptized. Please understand, this is not hyperbole what I'm saying. Do you understand that you are not greater than the other? Jonah obviously does not. He, parenthetically the king, issued a proclamation, and it said in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Jonah couldn't even be his own keeper. The king now is evangelizing his entire kingdom by calling them to a fast of repentance. And notice, Richard, he's a true father because he doesn't just include the rulers of the country or the average citizen. He extends the commandment to the beasts, to the flocks, to the herds of animals, which shows the attitude of a caring shepherd. Right, and it's wonderful. Ha-adam so the human being, Adam, and Behemah, the beast, and the Bakar, and Hatzon, which are the cow, and the sheep, which are the flocks. So yeah, precisely, you know, the entire society, and that's what's beautiful about it, is that the society includes these animals. People get upset when they read the Bible. You say, oh, the human beings are treated like animals. No, the animals are treated as part of the society. The society can't function, can't live without the animals. We downplay the importance of animals in our own society, which doesn't mean we should impose that on the ancient world. They were considered part of the entire system. The fact that the king wanted the entire social system to stop everything, putting the entire system's comfort on the line for the sake of showing its submission to the word of the Lord, this is the most powerful statement that could be made. I mean, after 9-11 in the United States, all the president could say is, everybody go shopping. This was the asceticism that we wanted to undergo here in our country, where this person said, no one is allowed to eat or drink. Don't feed your pets. No water for the dog. Verse 7 is scripture. I really want to stress this. We can't even include the Canadians in our family. And here, the king of Nineveh is saying, you have to include your pets. You have to include all the things that creep on the earth. Scripture is about inclusion. Scripture is about bringing everyone in. It's a rejection of Plato's citizen. Because by virtue of a citizen, you have, as Father Paul explained in one of our Tuesday shows... By bringing in this notion of a citizen, you are already excluding people outside of the city. And here you have a king doing exactly what God wills in Scripture. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. I mean, this is so amazing because it says, let them cry mightily unto God. And I think the translation there, it said, let man cry mightily. It's not true. It's let them cry. Both the animal and the beast is required to call out to God. And the man and the beast, the human being and the animal, is required to turn from his evil way. What does that mean? An animal, the cow is supposed to stop being evil? What does that even mean? Are they like treating the other 
cows not fairly? No, this means that any lack of submission, any lack of submission goes against God. And so this is what the king is saying. Every single action, every drop of water you drink, if you are a living soul, must be from the care of God. It's also a slap in the face of the human being because remember, anthropocentrism was, is, and will continue to be the most popular religion of all time. You cannot look at this and say, oh, God is doing this for the sake of humanity. What are you talking about? God didn't create humanity in Genesis. He created life of which man was a part. Man is as much for the care of the animals as the fruit of the land is for the sustenance of man. We are part of a system. We are not the main subject of the system. In Genesis, the word is serve. It's Abba. The, the human being is required to serve the earth. And of course, I would take it a step further. Abd is slave. So serve implies a choice. Notice, God said, be fruitful and multiply. The cow and the fish don't have a discussion about whether or not to get married. They obey the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. It's the human beings that are trying to calculate, can I afford college? I'm not making a theological statement about birth control. I'm simply making a point that of all of God's creatures, we have the highest aptitude for disobedience. That's all I'm saying. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So what's Jonah going to do, Richard? He bought his popcorn. He told everybody that the destruction was coming. What's he going to do when the C student shows up and gets not the same grade as him, but maybe even a better grade. The verb here, I love it because it says, God saw their deeds. Because so much of what we talk about, Father, is about lip service. It doesn't say, God heard their words. God saw their deeds. This is what God decided. He saw the deeds. So I don't want anyone to say that deeds don't matter. It's all about belief. I mean, that's malarkey because... God made his decision based on what he saw. Deeds, as we've said over and over again, not only matter, but they are the heart of the matter. So long as you don't assume that you did something. Again, we covered this last week. It's the word that's the primary actor. Jonah, to the extent that he was obedient, can't take credit because his obedience was imposed. All this nonsense about letting people figure it out and people are adults, they'll get it. It's all nonsense. When your kids are called to the basketball court, does the coach say, okay, we're here to play basketball. You guys are smart. Just go out there and work it out. You'll figure it out. No, he doesn't say that. He coaches. Why is it that we let people coach us even harshly when it comes to sports or when it comes to worldly success and business why is it okay there to put pressure and to push people but when it comes to doing the commandments of god we're supposed to handle everybody with kick gloves it's crazy 
The purpose of the teacher, the purpose of the prophet, the purpose of anyone who brings the proclamation is to coach and to give direction. Now, just because someone coaches an NBA team forcefully doesn't mean that he plays as well as his players, but that's not his function. He may be the worst guy in the history of basketball, but if he can coach it, he should coach with authority and push his team to do it. We have to change our mentality in this regard. And I love this text more than any other text because it's so explicit. And I love the way that the text in Hebrew brings out this notion because the Ninevites say, who can tell if God will turn? This word, I love it, shuv in Hebrew. Who knows if God will turn? And God saw their deeds that they turned from their way. People are on a path of a certain deed. But once they go to the path of another deed, it changes the outcome. It's very practical. As the king of Nineveh is on the path on a certain way, he says, uh-oh, let's get on God's path and brings the entire city with the animals with him. Then God, on his path to destruction, turns from his own path of destruction. And there's two beautiful things about this point that you make about verse 9. First, it's that they didn't need to go to the depths of the ocean to change their direction. And the word came to them only once. So they technically outdid Jonah, technically, in the structure of the story. But also this expression, who knows, has that quality of someone who says, this is the commandment. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. Maybe it will be favorable. Maybe it won't. But either way, let's follow it. One thing they never said is, who does Jonah think he is? Or why should I do this? Why should I do it? They aren't looking at the person. They're only listening to the word. They never referenced Jonah, actually. Thanks very much, Richard. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.